0: You know, I just bet we should have timed left at Albuquerque, and then maybe a right time at La Jolla.
1: What's this all about? All these stocks flying south. Thought we had a plan, then we got punched in the mouth. Thought the bulls had started running, doing bull things. Now the bears are chasing us around the ring. Thought sentiment had turned, thought breath had gotten better. What's that icy chill in the markets? Damn, we need a sweater, zip it up, tuck it in. Here we go again. Expectations become frustration. It happens now and then. Could we see this coming? Was it in the forecast? That bear market rally? Did we really think it would last? Inflation's still sticky high. The Fed hawks are flying high. Their terminal rate keeps rising, oh me, oh my. No pivot, no pause, no pecan pie. coming warm from the oven with a scoop of vanilla. No dessert, not yet, ladies and fellas. There's work to be done. Valuations unspun, forecast reductions, portfolio reconstruction, earnings revisions, allocation decisions. So much to do, little time for talk, but always a good time for a random walk. We'll take it step by step on our path to success. We've got Burton Malkiel on the Investopedia Express. Welcome back and welcome aboard. Anyone else have whiplash from that hard reversal? U.S. equity markets are coming off a bruising week as tougher talk from the Fed and more signs of sticky high inflation. For the week, the Dow lost 2.8%, its worst weekly decline since September. The S&P 500 dropped 3.4% and the Nasdaq fell 4%. The producer price index for November came in a little hotter than expected as wholesale prices keep on rising. Add that to the better than expected job gains we saw in November, and it really only equals one thing. The Fed is going to have to stay aggressive with rate hikes because the economy is still too hot. The FOMC meets this week, and Fed Fund futures, according to the CME's FedWatch tool, show an 80% probability that the committee will hike rates a half a percent or 50 basis points this week. That won't surprise anyone. But we will all be watching the Fed's dot plot, the most boring chart in economics, to see where the committee thinks rates should be three to six months from now. Many investors appear to be positioning themselves for more hawkishness from the central bank given the heavy outflows from stocks last week. According to data from Refinitiv Lipper, U.S. equity funds recorded withdrawals of $26.6 billion, the biggest weekly outflow since April of 2021. $9.9 billion worth of that came out of equity growth funds. $2.2 billion came from value funds as selling continued For a third straight week in each segment. $992 million went into U.S. bond funds and $886 million went into taxable bond funds as big investors are getting more comfortable with 3 to 5% yields given the shakiness in stocks. And cash keeps ruling everything around me. me. money. Money market funds saw $50 billion in inflows in November, the most since December of 2021. And that brings us to our big three for the week. Sarcly, 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 Sarcly. Sarcly, Sarcly. Number one, we talked about Wall Street market forecasts and predictions for the S&P 500 in the next 12 months on the last show. Those forecasts range from the most bearish of around 3200 from Barclays to the slightly more bullish from Wells Fargo at around 4500 for a year-end target. Both imply a rise or fall of the S&P 500 of no more than 10%. But the market strategists at BNP Paribas think the worst is yet to come. The team, led by Greg Bootle, head of U.S. Equity and Derivative Strategy, are expecting a capitulation event next year, a throwing in of the towel. The team writes, quote, this would be a departure from the current bear market regime, which has been characterized by a grind lower in equities as P.E. multiples have contracted, end quote. Bootle's team mined 100 years of stock market crashes to determine what may be headed our way. Discounting the swift bear market of March of 2020 when the bear market began, BNP says current conditions mirror 2002 more than 2020 given the drumbeat around a pending recession. That bear market was more than two years long with a drawdown of 50% and a 29% point peak to trough move in the VIX, the volatility index. A typical recession bear market is about one and a half years in length with a median drawdown of 38% and a median peak in the VIX of 40.5. Bootley and his team said if we apply those averages to the market today, it implies a trough in the middle of next year with the S&P 500 bottoming close to 3,000 and with the VIX in the low 40s. This may not be a worst case scenario, but it's pretty dire. The question we have to ask ourselves is whether we can withstand a 25% drawdown from these levels, and if we can't, what moves can we make today to lessen that blow? there are finally some alternatives. Number two, on the other hand, and there is always another hand, we can't ignore the fact that inflation is waning, albeit slowly, and historically, as our pal Ryan Dietrich at the Carson Group reminds us, the S&P 500 reacts very favorably to that trend. When inflation is lower than the year before, the S&P 500 gained 12.6% on average. When inflation is higher, it's only up about 5.8% on average. And number three, How long might this rate hiking cycle last? We know the Fed wants to see inflation down near 2%, so there's no clock running on inflation. However, if we look back at past periods of interest rate increases, going back to the early 1970s, Fed hiking cycles have lasted an average of 219 days from the first hike to the first cut, according to Arbor Research. As of today, we're currently just beyond 260 days. This rate hiking cycle is getting kind of old. Let's get set up for the week ahead. And this could be one of the most critical weeks for U.S. investors of the year. We're going to get both the Consumer Price Index for November and the FOMC's decision on interest rates that's on Wednesday. We talked about what the Fed is likely to do earlier in the show. Any deviation from that 50 basis point hike would be a serious surprise. Every word out of Fed Chair Jerome Powell's mouth will be hyper analyzed. The color of his tie, it's usually purple. What he had for breakfast, it's usually oatmeal. Everything, everything is going to be under scrutiny, as will the FOMC's policy statement and its forecast for the path of inflation. We're going to want a better picture of the Fed's terminal rate for the fed funds rate. That's the rate at which it expects the stop raising interest rates. We're also going to want the FOMC's forecast for inflation 12 months from now and where the dots on the dot plot are going to fall. If those dots are higher than they were last meeting, anywhere north of 5%, expect the bears to be on the prowl. On Thursday, the US Census Bureau will report November retail sales, and those sales are projected to have declined slightly last month following an unexpectedly strong 1.3% gain in October that marked the highest monthly gain since February. Retailers pulled forward a lot of their holiday sales with steep discounts and Amazon's Extra Prime Day last fall. Still, Retail sales have remained pretty robust this year despite inflation that has diminished our purchasing power. The U.S. personal savings rate recently fell to 2.3%, the lowest level since 2005, as consumers are spending a greater percentage of our disposable income and financing costs keep on climbing. Let's see just how long that can last into 2023. At the top of every investor's list of the best books on investing, the stock market, and how Wall Street really works, you're going to find A Random Walk Down Wall Street by Burton Malkiel. Published nearly 50 years ago, A Random Walk has more than withstood the test of time. While the products, services, size, and scale of the investment industry have grown exponentially, the tenets, the lessons, and the advice laid out in this Bible for investors are even stronger and more prescient today than they were in 1973. Lucky for us, Malkiel continues to update his book and share his wisdom. He's the Chemical Bank Chairman's Professor of Economics, Emeritus, and Senior Economist at Princeton University, and the Chief Investment Officer for Wealthfront, a digital and personal finance investing platform. And he is our very special guest this week on the Investopedia Express. Welcome, Professor. It's a real honor to have you here. Pleasure to be here. Well, congratulations on 50 years for your terrific book. You worked in the financial services industry at Smith Barney before you left for academia, and then you wrote a random walk, effectively really pulling back the curtain on Wall Street. What made you want to do that? Well,
0: I have been interested in the stock market since I was a young kid. I grew up quite poor. I didn't do any investing. I had no money to invest. But I knew the price of General Motors stock about as well as Ted Williams' batting average. I grew up in Boston, so Ted Williams was my great hero while I was growing up. So I've always been uh, interested and started my career, as you have suggested, on Wall Street. And basically, whatever academic work I have done has been on the stock market. And I've kind of never left the business world because while I have been an academic for most of my life, I serve on a number of investment committees. I have served on probably a couple of dozen corporate boards. And
1: so living in both worlds has worked very well for me. The book is called a random walk. But as you lay out in chapter after chapter, it's not all that random when you look at how the financial services industry has found more and more ways for us to give them our money. Explain how random walk came into your mind as you were writing the book and how it actually plays out throughout the course of the book.
0: Well, basically, I think of the word random as essentially meaning unpredictable. And unpredictable in the sense that It's really very, very difficult to predict who the great investment managers are going to be. And the problem is you can't simply take the great investment managers of the past and say that they're going to be the great investment managers in the future. Similarly, you can't look at a pattern of stock prices and say, X, Y, Z company has a great deal of momentum and therefore you should go and invest in it because the momentum can end in a heartbeat. The idea of a random walk is you can't predict it. You can't say that Warren Buffett's going to be a great investment manager, just as you couldn't say that Kathy Wood who absolutely shot the lights out in 2000, was going to continue in 2021 and 2022. And you can't say that because a stock went up in 2022, it's going to go up in 2023. That's what I mean by random. I mean, essentially, that people need to understand that a lot of what happens in the market particularly over the shorter
1: term, is essentially
0: unpredictable
1: to focus the first part of the book on bubbles. And there is so much to learn there. But when you read about what you read about tulip mania and the electronics bubbles, and and a lot of the ones that have followed generation after generation, you can't help but think about some of the bubbles that we've just been through. But let's just talk about tulip mania for a second, because I'm always referring to it. And I don't think a lot of people really understood how that came about. What got you so fascinated with the bubble of tulip mania? Then I want to relate that to some of the bubbles we've seen more recently the tulip bulb was really the
0: classic investment bubble. And classic because both of how high tulip bulb prices went, but how ridiculous it seems in retrospect that people started speculating on tulip bulbs and that a single tulip bulb could cost as much as a nobleman's castle. And so since Avoiding bubbles, avoiding getting swept up in some mania is so important for investors. I thought it was useful to then recount that classic mania where tulips came from the Middle East. They were introduced uh, into Holland. People uh, loved tulips, and uh, there started a speculation. That made a single tulip bulb double and then double again and then double again, and with one tulip bulb actually selling for about the equivalent of what a nobleman's castle would sell for. And then, of course, what happens with all bubbles is eventually some people say, hey, wait a minute, why should we pay that much for a single tulip bulb? And all of a sudden, the bubble Deflates, crashes, and in Holland, tulip bulbs would then be lying on the ground, essentially worthless.
1: You do such a great job in the book at talking about how to control our behaviors. I'm going to list some of the tips you mentioned there ignoring your friends, especially those that are trying to coerce you into buying something, avoiding overtrading, selling your losers, not your winners avoiding hot IPOs, avoiding hot tips and people out of breath. I love that section of the book where you're talking about that breathless salesman or the breathless broker that wants to get you in on something. How important is it to be able to control our behavior? Such a simple thing to say again, but such a hard thing to do as investors.
0: The two things that are so important to control are one, avoiding getting swept up in the bubbles. And number two, how difficult it is to be a disciplined saver. You know, one of the things that I show in the book, and there's a wonderful chart, or rather a table, that shows starting from the time that index funds became available, that if you just had a person who had the discipline to save something like $20 a week, and invested in an index fund, that over a 40-plus-year period, just with those kinds of modest savings, you could actually have a million and a half dollars today. But the discipline to say, I'm going to save regularly, I'm going to pay myself first out of my salary, I'm even if I'm living paycheck to paycheck, I'm going to take a few dollars out and put it aside, and I'm going to invest, no matter how pessimistic everybody is about the future, I'm going to just keep that up as
1: a regular, regular thing. I love some of the other concepts you get into, including our concepts and our notions around risk. And the way you describe it in the book is, what's your sleeping point? Talk to us about your sleeping point and how that's so important to know and be comfortable with as an investor.
0: The line comes from a famous remark of J.P. Morgan, where a friend of his was saying, I'm just so worried about my investments, I can't sleep. And J.P. Morgan said, well, sell down to the sleeping point. If you're that kind of person, just make sure that your portfolio is balanced with a lot of relatively safe investments, including even treasury bills, including, uh, I mean, if someone has that kind of temperament today, I would say, look, You can buy a two-year treasury security that yields almost 5%. I think common stocks are going to do better over the long run. But you ought to have enough of your portfolio in that kind of investment so that you don't have to worry if the part of your investment that's in common stocks
1: is, in fact, very volatile. How about the efficient market hypothesis? popularized, of course, over the last few decades, but something you write about a lot. Again, we've had a lot of dislocation markets, and some of that is because of you know, a lot of new investors rushing into the market over the past couple of years, certainly in lockdown. But do you still believe in that? Is that still a tenant out there that investors should pay attention to?
0: Yeah, I still do believe in it and believe in it just as strongly as ever. What the efficient market hypothesis means simply is that information gets recorded into prices quickly so that if a drug company uh, has just found a new cure for cancer and that should double the price of the uh, company's stock the price will react today it won't react slowly over time and i do believe that that does still happen now A lot of people say that the problem with the efficient market hypothesis is that it means then that prices are always right. And that's not right. Prices are not always right. Prices are always wrong. Some people may think that that uh, new cancer drug will triple the price of the stock. Some other people will think it will only increase the price of the stock by 50%. So... The market won't get it exactly right, but nobody knows for sure whether the price is too high or too low. And so what the efficient market theory says is that market prices may not be right. In fact, they're probably always wrong, but nobody knows for sure whether they're too high or too low. And in fact, The market does a reasonably efficient job of getting it right, so efficient that to try to bake your own bets and picking a portfolio that you think is going to do better than the market portfolio just doesn't work. And one of the things that I've been able to do in the 50 years since the random walk book was first published is look at the results. And the results are that year after year, two thirds of active portfolio managers, the professionals are beaten by a simple index fund. And the one third who win in one year aren't the same as those who win in the next year. So that when you compound this over 10 or 15 or 20 years, you find that 90% of active funds underperform a simple low cost index fund.
1: Let's talk a little bit about what you've been doing with Wealthfront. Wealthfront, again, very popular digital investing and personal finance platform, one we review and rate pretty highly here at Investopedia. What's your relationship with Wealthfront and why Wealthfront?
0: I signed up with Wealthfront because it was doing precisely the kind of thing that I've always recommended in the book, in that what it does is it puts together a portfolio of very uh, simple index funds total stock market fund, a total international fund, an emerging market fund, a bond fund. It actually puts together portfolios of low cost index funds, which is exactly what I think people should do. But it does something else that I think is actually very important. And that is it does something called tax loss harvesting. Now in the investment world, outperformance is generally called alpha. To the extent that you make 1% more than the market, that's what investment professionals call gaining an alpha. Now I'm skeptical that people gain alphas as I've suggested to you. There are a few people who've done it in the long run, but by and large, it doesn't happen. But the surest way to get an alpha is through tax loss harvesting.
1: Let's get into a lightning round here. I hate to make you uh, do short answers because you have so many great things to say, but we're going to try to do 10 seconds on each response here because I'm just so curious on your reaction. So let's get started. Are you ready? Ready, I'll say a name or a word and you give me your word association with it. And let's begin with Warren Buffett. Great
0: long run investor and believer in index funds.
1: Elon Musk. Clearly
0: a genius from forming Tesla, but maybe like a lot of geniuses, a bit crazy. Jeff Bezos. Again, a genius in forming Amazon and a great uh, help to uh, America's consumers. Jack Bogle. Probably the investor who's done more for the small investor than any other uh, person in the world. ESG. I'm skeptical because I'm not sure that really one is conforming to the ESG ideal. And I worry that people will get neither good returns uh, nor moral investments. Cryptocurrency. I am a skeptic, a complete skeptic. We will have cryptocurrencies in the future, but governments will be the ones who initiate them. Wall Street bets. The Reddit forum. Again,
1: basically a gambling casino. You've written one of the great books on investing, but what is your favorite book on investing that's not yours? I would say that
0: Jack Bogle's classic book on mutual funds would be one of them. Another one would be Charlie Ellis's book, Winning the Losers Game. Again, both of them quite consistent with the ideas that i put in Random
1: Walk. Yeah, timeless, just like your book as well. All right, what are your predictions or what is a prediction for 2023 doesn't have to be market-related, but if it's investor-centric, even better. But what do you think is out there that either, either isn't getting enough attention or maybe is, but is actually a bigger deal than people might think?
0: What I'm more worried about than other investors, and it's both for 2023 and 2024 and 2025, is I am afraid that the inflation that we have Is going to be far more persistent than a lot of people think. And I think it for two reasons. I am worried because of the demography. We have uh, an aging population and a population that's not growing, and the labor force is not growing. So I think the labor shortages that we have now are not going to end very easily. And we as a country, Seem to have an animus against immigration, which would be one way we solve the problem because the emerging parts of the world are growing and are young. So I worry about the inflationary pressures from not enough labor. I'm also worried about the inflationary pressures that will come from our feeling of hate for globalization. Globalization has been a a great force to bring prices down. And we seem to be retreating from globalization. We seem to be retreating from wanting to trade with China and other emerging nations. And I do worry that the situation is likely to be very, very difficult for 2023, and beyond. Now, having said that, I want to though end with the advice, but you should still stay the course. Because what if we have a decade of stagflation? Now, I'm not suggesting it's going to be that bad, but it could be. What happened during our last decade of stagflation, the 1970s, Should you have stopped investing then despite the fact that the Standard and Poor's Index at the end of the decade of the 70s was the same as it was at the beginning and that we had very low growth and that we had high inflation? And the answer is no, because another one of these lessons is regular dollar cost averaging meant That if you did do what I've suggested of regular investing, even in that terrible decade, you made six and a half percent per year on each dollar invested. And so even if the worst happens, the worst being that we're going to have some stagflationary tendencies in 2023 and beyond, still stay the course, still invest, still equities are the best long-run inflation hedge that we know of. And yep, things could be very tough next year and beyond, but stay the course. Great
1: advice as usual. And you're dropping so many great gems and dollar cost averaging, of course, one of the secret ingredients to wealth building along with compounding. That makes investing in stocks and index investing so powerful. All right, let's go out on this. You know we're a site famous for our investing in finance terms. You've dropped so many gems on us today, but I'm wondering, do you have a favorite or do you have a favorite of the moment, a favorite investing term that just speaks to your soul?
0: Well, really a couple of them. I mean, it's still, you know, index funds. I can't stress enough echoing Jack Bogle because it was his expression, stay the course Keep the discipline of regular uh, investing and be modest. Don't think that you're smarter than the market. The market's not always right, but it's very, very hard to beat.
1: Bow to the wisdom of the market. So good. So valuable. Professor Burton Malkiel, the author of A Random Walk Down Wall Street, the best investment guide. Money Can Buy. You're also the Chemical Bank Chairman's Professor of Economics Emeritus and the Senior Economist at Princeton University and the Chief Investment Officer for Wellfront. But more importantly, and most importantly for us, you are one of investors' best friends. It is a delight to have met you. And thank you so much for coming on the Investopedia Express. We are honored.
0: Thank you very much for the wonderful
1: questions. It's terminology time. Time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. And this week, we're not going to give you just one term. We're going to give you 10. The Investopedia Top 10 Search Terms for the year 2022. Number one, poison pill. And we can thank Elon Musk for 2022's top term of the year. Poison pill is a colloquial term for a defense strategy used by the directors of a public company to prevent activists, investors, competitors, or other would-be acquirers from taking control of the company by buying up large amounts of its stock. On April 14th, 2022, Elon Musk made an unsolicited offer to purchase Twitter at $54.20 per share. Twitter's board initially responded with a poison pill strategy to resist a hostile takeover. Ultimately, the board relented, and Musk captured the blue bird. Number two, Recession this word has been on everyone's lips in 2022 because of that sticky high inflation and rising interest rates, which are usually a recipe for a recession. A recession is defined as a significant widespread and prolonged downturn in economic activity. Given current economic forecasts, expect this term to remain popular next year. Number three, hostile takeover. This is another term that popped thanks to Elon Musk and Twitter. Musk's unsolicited bid to buy Twitter on April 14th was considered a hostile takeover, which refers to the acquisition of one company by another company against the the wishes of the former. Number four, bear market. Even though 2022 was the year of the tiger, bears stole the show this year. Number five, cold storage. Cold storage and cold wallets became very popular this year as cryptocurrency investors reacted to news of record-breaking digital asset hacks online. Cold wallets are digital wallets not connected to the internet and therefore less vulnerable to the hacks and downfalls of online systems. Number six, the federal funds rate. The term federal funds rate refers to the target interest rate set by the Federal Open Market Committee, the FOMC, and it's the rate at which commercial banks borrow and lend their excess reserves to each other overnight. Number seven, capitulation. Think of capitulation as throwing in the towel. Capitulation in investing describes when a significant number of investors succumb to fear and sell over a short period of time, causing the price of a security or market to drop sharply amid high trading volume. While the S&P 500 fell as much as 25% from its highs this year at its low point, most investors never really capitulated as they did in past bear markets, given the reports from several online brokers. Number eight, GILT's. Government bonds in the UK, India, and several other Commonwealth countries are known as gilts, which are the equivalent of U.S. Treasury securities in their respective countries. On September 22nd, British government bond prices or gilts had their largest drop since the start of the COVID-19 crisis in March of 22, as the then-Prime Minister Liz Truss attempted to push forward an economic agenda of tax breaks amid rampant inflation. She was forced to pull back her plan and fire her finance minister, and the blunder eventually cost her her job. Number nine, petrodollars. Petrodollars are crude oil export revenues denominated in US dollars. On February 14th, Russia invaded Ukraine, which contributed to pushing crude oil prices higher than $125 per barrel last spring. Then on March 14th, and number 10, core inflation. Inflation was top of mind and one of our most popular terms all year, especially as the annual rate of inflation hit a 40-year high. Core inflation is the change in the cost of goods and services, excluding food and energy prices. Food and energy prices are exempt from this calculation because their prices can be too volatile or fluctuate wildly, as we saw all year long. And that's why core inflation was so popular. Special thanks to Professor Malkiel for joining The Express this week and for all he has done to educate investors over his brilliant career. You have our gratitude. We'll post a transcript to our conversation, as well as links to his terrific books, including the release of the 50th anniversary of A Random Walk Down Wall Street in the show notes. The lessons in the book are timeless, but Malkiel goes the extra mile and updates A Random Walk with new case studies and information every few years. It is the ultimate map to the treasure of long-term investing, so give yourself or someone you care about this book as a gift this holiday season. Hold on tight this week, and we'll ride out with the Santa Fe Roadrunner train as it departs the rail yard in Santa Fe, New Mexico on its way to Lamy, New Mexico, and then all points east. And we'll talk again a little further on down the line.